you are all checked in now, so you can just take a seat, and the doctor will see you shortly. Right, okay, sir, I'm just going to get you to step on the scales for a second. Have you considered losing some weight out with your joint pain? speak. You can't be fat and happy. It's a tea that you drink, and it melts all your belly fat. All right, class. Who can tell me what a healthy snack looks like? Before we start you on treatment, we're going to need you to lose some weight. You'll never have a baby unless you lose weight. Itne alu khaogi to alu ban jaogi. Thank you for waiting. The fat doctor will see you now. Welcome everyone to the final episode of this series of the Fat Doctor podcast. I thought we would end on a happy note. I wanted to end with a couple who have inspired me, who have brought a great amount of joy to my life. I haven't known them for very long, but um, they've made a huge impression on me, actually. And I'm super excited not only to welcome them, but also to end this series with their very positive message. I'm delighted to introduce Ariel and Zoe. Ariel runs a dance company called Madison Dance Life. Um, You'll find both of them on Instagram. They've been together for five years. They've been married for two. Ariel specialises in belly dancing and Zoe is a burlesque dancer. You can find her on Instagram under the name at Connie Lingus Burlesque. Ariel, Zoe, thank you so much for joining me today. This is going to be a fun one. I can tell you have both been such supporters, such avid supporters of my show. And I asked you to be on the podcast because you bring so much joy to my life. And I think we need a little bit of joy. We've dealt with quite a few serious issues in the last few episodes. We've dealt with tremendous fat phobia, weight stigma that almost killed a person. We've dealt with the hypocrisy and lies that tends to manifest itself in the health and wellness industry. We have dealt with abuse. And of course, those are all really important, but it's good to sometimes focus on the positive as well. And you two bring so much positivity into my life and to the lives of anyone that follows you. So first things first, I think I need to ask the most important question. Everything else pales in comparison, really. Zoe, how did you come up with the name Connie Lingus? I mean, it's just beyond awesome. And I I need you to explain the history of that name. (laughs) (laughs) So my my name is Zoe and I perform burlesque under the name Connie Lingus. And uh, true story, uh, it was my mom's idea. My mom suggested it. And I was like, God, that is too good. So my mama named me twice. (laughs) What an awesome mum. I'm so impressed. I love a good pun, so I thoroughly approve, I must say. Okay, now, now we've got the important stuff out of the way. Let's, uh, let's, let me try and be a little bit professional about this. So, Ariel, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and about dance life? I moved to Madison 20 years ago, so I've been here quite some time. We're both from the Chicagoland area. She's from Chicago proper, and I'm from the outermost suburbs. So I opened Dance Life uh, 11 years ago. I started belly dancing with my mom. She had seen a show that had dancers in it and was like, hey, you know what? I think I'm going to take a class. And I was like, oh, oh me, oh me, you're taking me to. (laughs) I didn't really give her a choice on that. And um, so we started going to classes together. I immediately fell in love. I traveled all over the country um, studying from a lot of different dancers, most of them Egyptian, doing the modern Egyptian style. Then in 2010, I got an offer to open my own studio by a family friend. And so I was like, yeah, because I didn't know any better. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, so yeah, I've been running the studio for about 11 years and, um, you know, there is this idea that for belly dancers that you can be any size and it's really accepting and welcoming for a lot of different body types. And when it comes to classes, that's true. However, when it comes to the professional side of things, right, if you're a performing dancer, the standards are pretty much what model standards are. That anything above like a six or an eight is plus size and you're not going to find any costumes and people aren't going to want to book you because you're too fat and et cetera, et cetera. So in the course of opening the studio, because I was so young when I started, you know, I grew into my adult body and I thought that I was unhealthy, right? Like so many of us do. I'm gaining weight and I'm unhealthy. Nothing else was wrong with me. I didn't have any issues with blood work, nothing like that. But I was like, I need to get healthy. So in the course of that, I did lose a lot of weight eventually. And that it didn't start out as an eating disorder, but it turned into one. And untangling myself from that and untangling myself from the body standards of my job um, was a real a real struggle. And I met Zoe before I really knew that I had an eating disorder. And, and she is, she's got a PhD in feelings. She's not a PhD. It's a master's degree, not a PhD. A master's degree in feelings. <laughs> and she really helped me out with that. Well, see, I told you this was going to be a good one. I told you this was going to bring us joy. A master's degree in feelings. Uh, mm, that's so lovely. Zoe, why don't you tell us about yourself? I grew up just outside Chicago and moved to the city for college and lived there for a number of years. And I started taking burlesque classes uh, when I was 26, 27, maybe, no, a little younger than that. Anyway, mid-20s. And I moved to Madison with an ex who was starting a graduate program at the university here. And we broke up eight months later. I had found Dance Life uh, on a Google search because I wanted to continue taking burlesque. And I saw that there were burlesque classes and belly dance looked kind of cool. So I started going to Dance Life as a student um, and I was in a troupe and we were getting ready for a performance. And then I went through this breakup and I went to stay with my mom for a week and I emailed my teacher, Ariel, to be like... Um, so I'm going to have to miss class. And also, I don't know anyone in Madison. Do you know of anyone who's looking for a roommate? And she very uncharacteristically, I would later learn, was like, well, I have an extra bedroom. You could come crash with me. So the plan had been that I was going to I was going to stay in her extra room for a couple weeks while I found a new apartment. And it turned out we lived together really well. And, uh, you know, we were similar levels of messy and our schedules worked really well together. And so I was like, I don't know how the studio's doing, but if you need a roommate, if you could use the extra cash, like, I could just stay. So we were roommates. And then I never left. <laughs> and it was very, so when she sent that email and I said, sure, come stay in my room. So I'm actually a deeply introverted person. And this was wildly uncharacteristic for me. I sent that email and I was like, oh my God, what if she says yes? And then she did. And she said yes again later. It worked out really well. <laughs> So it was a bit of a sordid affair. It was very like, oh, I can't. No, she's my roommate. She's my student. Yeah, she was very like, she was very like, oh, people are going to think I'm a predator. People are going to think I opened this business so I can prey on my students. <laughs> I think th this is the first time this has happened. Like, I, I don't think people are going to think that. No, definitely not. That's not what we were thinking at all. Uh, I love that. <laughs> I love that that was the thought that crossed your mind. That shows that you're obviously very much into consent. And I think that's a great thing. Something to be proud of. But, you know, all jokes aside, it hasn't always been easy for you, right? Ariel, you mentioned before that you had an eating disorder, and I know that's something that you're willing to talk about. Do you mind kind of explaining to us what that was like? So it was something that I never sought help for um, because I didn't 
think that I qualified. I actually didn't realize that I had been struggling with anorexia until I was starting to come out of it because even at my lowest weight, I still was barely normal, quote unquote, on the BMI. So I don't think that I would have ever even gotten a diagnosis had I sought it. It was this moment. (laughs) It's such a silly story, but this was really the moment when I realized that something was severely wrong. So I was going out on really long hikes with my best friend at the time, and we called it goading, you know, like goats, because we would use our hands and we'd be climbing trees and climbing rocks and jumping off stuff. So I named it goading. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, when I went with you guys and I was like, what the the fuck how are you guys so good at this you're like billy goats <laughs> yeah <laughs> so that's how it got the name goading so we were out doing this every single weekend and i was just getting exhausted and like feeling sick the next day because at that time i wasn't allowed to eat snacks and um you know when zoe and i would finish eating dinner she'd want to have a little dessert and i wasn't eating any desserts and i just had this moment i was so tired after a hike and i'm sitting on the couch next to zoe and i just burst into tears I just start sobbing and I'm sobbing on her shoulder saying, I can't go on not eating snacks and desserts forever. But what I was saying was that my world was so small. I had limited my world to such a tiny little slice of life that I couldn't enjoy it fully anymore. And that was the moment that I started to let go. And eating disorder recovery for me was like a game of tug of war that I was losing, but I was letting go of that rope so slowly and letting my hands get so rope burnt on the way through. It was something that took me years to let go of. Um, And I look back at how bad things were and I feel incredibly lucky that I didn't have a recovery team. This was something that I did on my own and with the love of my wife and the support of one of my friends who did the intuitive eating workbook with me. When I hear of other people who were as deep in it as I was, they had a whole team, you know, so I really congratulate myself for being able to do that. And at the same time, I really grieve that I had to do that alone, that I couldn't have a team because I didn't have the financial capacity to provide that for myself. And even if I had it, I wouldn't have been taken seriously. You were seeing a therapist for a while who specialized in eating disorders and did not recognize that you had one. Wow. You know, I'd I'd like to say that I'm shocked by this, but I'm not. And that is, I think, the saddest thing about this story. I've heard similar stories from many different individuals in all walks of life, different countries, different backgrounds. And it seems to be a recurring theme that if you have a BMI over what is considered normal, in other words, over 25, then you are far less likely to get a diagnosis of an eating disorder which is terrible because the vast majority of people with eating disorders aren't actually underweight. And by that, I mean their BMI is over 18. And yet the medical profession continues to fail people with eating disorders. Therapists who claim to be experts in the field of eating disorders fail to spot one, even though it is clear that a person has one. They fail to spot it because the person sitting in front of them doesn't look like they have an eating disorder. And that just shows how obsessed we are as a society and as professionals with image. Because if we could just stop looking at people and making decisions about their bodies and actually start listening to people and making those decisions, then I think that a lot more people would get help. I'm so sorry to hear that happen to you. Yeah, when looking back, I absolutely buy the DSM-5, absolutely aside from weight qualified for both anorexia and bulimia, unquestionably. And yeah, it wasn't caught. So there was a lot of, there was ways that I was failed by the medical community. And it was, you know, sheer luck that I had a friend who said, hey, have you heard of health at every size? 
when I when I first sort of came into this kind of fat liberation community, I had a real blind spot when it came to eating disorders. And I, I'm going to put my hands up and admit that. I really had no flipping clue. And I said a lot of things that were very offensive to begin with. I lacked the kind of empathy, the knowledge, the understanding. And I'm very lucky that there were some fantastic people, most of whom I met online, actually, who explained things to me, showed me the area of my ways, you know, helped me to learn. I'm so grateful for that education, actually, because the education didn't come from my colleagues. It didn't come from my peers. It didn't come from textbooks. It didn't come from reading peer journals. No, it came from lived experience. It came from people who had been through the experience of an eating disorder and come out the other side and wanted to help educate health professionals like me. One of the things I realised really early on is that doctors are often partly responsible for that eating disorder and yet fail to diagnose it and fail to treat it. Has that been your experience as well, Ariel? What do you think? Yes, that that is exactly what happened to me. And it was, so I didn't necessarily have direct comments by my doctor, but it was my BMI, you know, so it was indirectly through my doctors that I felt that I was quote unquote unhealthy and needed to lose weight. I'm so glad that you're feeling better now, for want of a better word, that you've recovered from your eating disorder and that you are helping other people to recover now. And whether or not they have an eating disorder or disordered eating, or if it's just low self-esteem or poor body image, you know, you're doing amazing work. As I said, you, you bring a lot of joy into my life and are certainly helping me. I've, I've really learned to love my body. And I think the main catalyst for this was that I got involved in activism. I got involved in, you know, the fat liberation community. And I started talking to people as the fat doctor. And as a fat doctor, I can't really afford to go on a diet and lose weight because it would be an absolute joke. Do you think being part of the fat liberation community has actually been beneficial to your healing journey. I completely relate to that. And I have said to Zoe many times, because, you know, one thing that I feel like we're still really stuck in this definition of anorexia as being a body size, but anorexia is a mental illness. It's a mental illness that has a really, unfortunately, high death rate. And the things that I post, the number one person that benefits from the work that I do is me. I post what I needed to hear and what I still need to hear, because for me, it takes daily work. I have to work on it every single day in order not to let that mental illness take me back. And it's the same thing for me is that this is my brand now. And to go because I I just had thoughts yesterday myself too of like, I I need to lose weight. I wish I was smaller. I want to change my stomach, you know, and then I'm like, you know what? I (laughs) she's rubbing my belly. (laughs) I don't want to do that to my students. You know, because I I know that feeling when you look up to somebody and think, okay, I want to have that level of confidence and that level of freedom. I don't want to take that from them. You know, I don't. And sometimes we have to do it for other people. So I really resonate with that. And and I feel the same way is I wouldn't want my students to be like, oh, no, she gave into it because we don't need to give into it. We're fine the way we are. And it's the forces outside of us that are saying that we aren't. Thank you very much for sharing and thank you for being honest with us and, you know, opening up about something that I'm sure is deeply personal and still difficult to relive. With your permission, I'd like to move on to the dance now because the dance makes me happy and I know you have a lot of really wonderful things to say about dance. So Zoe, obviously Marielle is a teacher. Are you a teacher as well? Do you you teach burlesque? I teach a um, a dance uh, a fat positive dance cardio class called Live and Large Dance Party, 
And um, it is, yeah, it's similar to like a Zumba or that sort of thing, but it is all original choreographies and they are designed to be um, easy to adapt to an individual body, easy to follow, kind of choose your own intensity. They can be done from a chair. And the playlist is really fun. We get pretty silly in the class. And that was started in the before times prior to the pandemic. We had like four or five teachers and we all did two or three songs But then when things shut down and we had to go strictly online, I took the class over. And it's been really fun to kind of have chosen all the songs and all that and and really made it more uh, explicitly fat positive. I have taught, I have subbed for the burlesque class. I don't have my own burlesque class at this point because I am intimidated. And this is a conversation we have every couple of months that where she's like, you should really be teaching burlesque. I'm like, I have nothing to offer. So I'm not going to weigh into any kind of marital discussions, but, uh, you know, you can probably guess what I think. I love both burlesque and belly dancing. I love watching you do it. I love, I love watching your posts and I love watching your videos. I think there is really something quite special about both of them, in particular belly dancing. I, I think that has a lot to do with my belly and that stuff maybe we could talk about together. But I was um, surprised, I guess, when you said earlier on that belly dancers weren't traditionally fat because I thought in my you know very limited knowledge of belly dancing, I thought that that was like the one form of dance where we are almost encouraged to be fat and that we're supposed to have a belly. Is Is that not the case? So Egyptian dance is what I'm primarily familiar with, though, of course, this comes from a lot of Middle Eastern countries. Everybody has their own different style and take on it. Um, And if you go and see the native dancers, a lot of times, you know, they'll have fat on their bodies. So weddings in Egypt, it's traditional to have a belly dancer. Um, They do an opening procession. It's called the Zephyr, and it's the the dancer leading the bride and groom down the aisle. So uh, a belly dancer is something that you traditionally see. Now, if you look up on YouTube, what you're going to find is all of the very wealthy people hiring the dancers that are primarily from outside of Egypt and a lot of times those dancers are quite thin so there is some class association um, with what body type you're gonna see on a dancer you know I mean I feel like a lot of countries have the same thing as the the larger curvier dancers are associated with like a lower caste dance so hang on a second am I right in thinking that we need to decolonize dance as well because that's what it sounds like it sounds to me like traditional dancers have been massively influenced by the West and now are sort of relegated to um, poorer communities, to lower castes, as you described them. And sort of the more westernized version of the dance has been sort of lifted up to become the highest and most special form of dance. So basically what we're saying is belly dancing has been colonized. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah, that is fair to say. And this dance, you know, there's always been sexuality associated with it and sensuality. And um, it's a dance that women will perform for women. And if you perform it for men, then there's a certain connotation for that. But yeah, I mean, there has certainly been appropriation of the style from the white dancers coming in and sanitizing things. And there's also been movements in Egyptians to do the same. So there's a lot of give and take, particularly between Egypt and the United States due to a long history of the United States, like funding movies and things. And that's where belly dancers became stars. So yeah, do you want to talk a little bit about the history of the costume that we in the US associate with a quote unquote traditional belly dance look? Yeah, so the bra and belt and long skirt um, is us imitating them and imitating us. And now it's just kind of become the standard in the I think it was the 30s. I think it was the 30s that um, the United States went to Cairo, 
Mumbai and Hong Kong to film movies, right? They wanted to have Hollywood in other places. That's side note where Bollywood came from. So they started making Egyptian movies and then people in the United States saw those movies and started putting belly dancers into their into their movies. And this is where we got this concept of the spangly brawn belt. There's nothing traditional about that costume. What? Oh, man. Honestly, you are just you're just making me realize I have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> so what is the traditional dress then if it's not what we think it is? The Gawazi, if we're going to say that anything is traditional, the Gawazi dancers from Egypt um, and, and other areas, but again, I know about the Egyptian ones, um, would oftentimes wear like a vest with a tunic underneath. So we're looking at like a big baggy white, you know, or light colored piece of fabric with a, um, you know, tighter vest over it, and then many layered skirts. So the actual traditional costume is quite covered. So it, the belly dance is not what it's called in Egypt. So oriental dance is what it is referred to in Egypt, or rocks belly if you're doing more of like the, the folksier side of dance. So when Victorians came over, and, and this was in a corseted time, right, at a time when everybody was wearing really stiff things, and there was no movement in the torsos, to, to see a stomach that undulated in shimmies, because those were the, the things that they were really scandalized by, was the body rolls and the shaking. And that's how it got the name belly dance, because their torsos moved in a time when that was unexpected. <laughs> right. So interesting that you say that, because I think that's what appeals the most to me about belly dancing. And if I was to ever start any form of dance class, it would probably be belly dancing. And that's because my belly is a source of great shame for me and it always has been and I and I know that people who tend to carry their weight around their middle often feel the same way it's it's the part of your body that's demonized the most right I mean people who have kind of fat thighs or a fat bottom that's somehow become more acceptable big boobs also quite acceptable but having a big belly it's up there with having a double chin and having flabby arms you know and it's considered to be really 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 the worst form of fat and it doesn't help that all the doctors and nurses and other medical professionals out there say it's your belly fat that's the most dangerous and people who carry weight around their middle are more likely to develop diabetes and you know this that and the other so not only do you feel ugly but you also feel unhealthy and um, there's something about what you just said about kind of Victorians being super scandalized about these women who weren't necessarily sort of unclothed in any way. They weren't necessarily trying to be provocative, but they were undulating this part of their anatomy that at the time, you know, people were trying to get rid of with corsets. There's something about that that really resonates with me. I'm tempted to take a class. I really am. Oh, we're oh, just we're excited by excited, that idea. Like, oh, you're going to come take a class? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, um, I've always loved dancing and I've loved the idea of dancing. But ever since I was a little girl, I didn't believe I was capable of dancing. And the reason is when I was really young, my mum used to watch me and my sister dance. And like, we would dance to kind of Madonna or whatever was really cool in the 90s. No, it wasn't the 90s. It was the 80s. What am I saying? Anyway, my mother used to tell me that I had no rhythm. I think she was very embarrassed by my dancing. And that's not unusual because if you've ever seen like a five-year-old kid dance, most times it looks ridiculous. And when my kids danced when they were five, you know, I used to sort of try not to laugh at them or embarrass them in any way. But my mum, I think she probably became quite embarrassed. And as a result, she lashed down. She'd just be like, oh, you're so terrible. Stop doing that. Stop doing that. And she'd stop me from 
from dancing and she'd tell me that I had no rhythm and that I, I should find something else to do, you know, don't quit your day job kind of thing. And, um, yeah, that sort of stuck with me. And now I just, I've got it in my head that I can't dance, that I just simply incapable of doing it. So I, I'm, yeah, really anxious about starting up. I will say the target audience, maybe this wasn't the original idea, but at this point, the target audience of the studio is adults who believe they're terrible dancers. People with little to no dance experience who want to relate positively to their bodies, who want to kind of develop a cool new skill in adulthood. And so you would be, you are a prime demographic. If, <laughs> if you think you're a terrible dancer, like dance place, dance life is the place for you, for sure. So where does all this confidence come from? Because I watch your videos and I see the stuff that you post online and I watch your lives and I know how confident you are and how inspiring you are because you inspire me to be more confident in myself. Where does that come from? So actually what you were saying about, you know, your belly being the part of your body that brings you the most shame, I really relate to that. Um, And it's ironic that I chose the job that I did. That's always been the part of my body that I went to war on. And I really went to extreme lengths in order to not have a belly because that's just an area of my body that I tend to carry more weight than others. And that's really demonized in many societies. So I started the process of unlearning that fat phobia because that's what it was. You know, I had to get through having an eating disorder and um, coming to understand what weight stigma meant. And, you know, honestly, even in the belly dance world, it is uncommon to see a dancer of my size who dances with an uncovered belly because most of the time they'll you know, wear dresses or body stockings. And I totally understand why, because the world is very cruel to those of us who are soft in the middle. The softer you are, the more cruel it is. I wanted to be the demonstration of like, look at how cool this is. You know, we put on all of these spangles and sparkles and things that shimmy and shake. Well, my body does that too. And it can be part of the instrument. So I really suffered from internalized fat phobia, you know, and when I started to actually listen to the stories of fat people and see that, Everybody knows that the world is unkind to fat people. You know, there's still this argument about whether fat phobia is real or not, which to me is just ridiculous. Like anybody who says that, choose to spend a year as a fat person and then tell me. (laughs) I almost wonder if the question is not so much whether fat phobia is real so much as whether it's like deserved. Right. Like I feel like the debate right now is like people will be like, yeah, I'm fat phobic because fat's disgusting. We're like, well, you've acknowledged the fat phobia. So I guess good job on that. But I feel like we're contending with an attitude that that fat people deserve the scorn. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And so in the process of recovering from the eating disorder that I had, of course, I gained back all of the weight and then some like everybody does. I made it to the four year mark. And most of us don't make it past five. And I was one of those people. Surprise, surprise. And um, I didn't want to hide myself. I didn't want to feel like I couldn't do my art because my body had changed. So I decided that I wanted to bring this to my students. And I knew that if I was feeling this way, that I wanted to let them know that losing a bunch of weight doesn't solve those feelings of self-hatred. You'll just find new things to hate, which is what I did. You know, then it was like, oh, this part's too saggy and this part's too loose and this part's wrinkly now. You know, you just you can't hate yourself into self-love. And that's very real. So in the process of learning about um, not letting our own internalized fat phobia take over, I wanted to spread the message that this isn't just about body image. You know, because people ask me a lot, 
what brings you confidence and what got you to this place of feeling like you deserve to be seen and take up space. And it was not finding self-love, though that definitely helped. It was learning about the system that tells us that we don't deserve to take up space. I don't think that we can really truly heal until we learn why we feel the way we do and why, you know, for those of us who are in large bodies, why the world treats us like like it does and that it is not something that we deserve. It is an actual form of oppression because I feel like that's a lot of body positive places miss this piece Mm -hmm. is that it's not just about self-esteem. But I do feel like we have to get free enough from that internal shame, you know, that feeling of I need to hide myself. We can't go further and do other work until we can stop fighting ourselves. People who've been paying attention may know that I did uh, an Insta Live with you, Ariel, didn't I? It was a while ago now. I will always remember because you're the first person who ever approached me and wanted to financially compensate me for my time, which I was just blown away by because no one had ever offered to do that before. And then we had this fantastic conversation. And I have to say, I didn't know much about you before then. I learned about you afterwards as I started following you. But one of the things we talked about was intersectionality and how fat phobia intersects with all sorts of other forms of oppression. Now, as two individuals who are in a same-sex couple, is that something that you have experienced personally? So I, in this case, the intersection of, um, you know, the oppression of gayness and the oppression of fat phobia, I really found that it was being free of the male gaze that allowed me to consider being other than a trophy. Yeah, we we both were previously in relationships with men. We're we're bisexual converts. <laughs> um, <laughs> um but yeah, so I, I just want to echo what Ariel is saying, that kind of pulling away from living in a patriarchal model has really accelerated this for me too. So sorry to interrupt. <laughs> You know, honestly, as somebody who's really present on the internet, I have found that sure men will get mean and we know what it comes down to is like, I'm not packaging this for you, (laughs) you know, and they're angry about that. How dare you not cater to the male gaze? But I have actually found that to be a protective force Mm -hmm. um, is that men just kind of leave me alone. And in a way, um, becoming more visibly lesbian, there is a certain power that's ascribed to being in a larger body and dressing more masculinely, you know, is that in a way I get some protection of that of that white male privilege. All of a sudden, I'm seen as a more competent individual and um, men are more afraid and more intimidated to say something to me. So I have actually found that to be a very protective force for me as I am on the internet. And you can look and see in any of my social profiles, it's 90% women and 10% men. All of the analytics say this, you know, men just know this isn't for me. (laughs) And so they actually leave me alone a lot more than they used to. So I know that there's a lot of people who have not had that experience. But um, for me, it's actually been it's been quite good. (laughs) Yeah, I would add too that like if if people are writing either of us off as like fat lesbians, like cool. Bye. Like that's those those aren't our people. Yeah, sounds good. <laughs> it's also like yes, yes. Also you're right. Yes. yes. Yeah. That lesbian, you're right. <laughs> yeah. You know, that actually makes a lot of sense because one thing that I have found is that when it comes to the fat liberation community, queer folks, queer femmes, you know, non-binary folks, trans folks seem to be some of the loudest and uh, most kind of powerful advocates. 
uh, lesbians especially, uh, there's something about the lesbian community that, as you say, it's, it's, no, it's not interested in the male gaze. And once you remove yourself from the male gaze, so much is possible. And, you know, I don't think you need to necessarily be a lesbian to no longer care about the male gaze, but you can certainly take your cue from the lesbian community. So that's kind of inspiring. It makes me, um, makes me feel good. And, I, you know, I, over the last few months, have noticed that I'm doing more and more things that are considered sort of the opposite of what one should be doing. Like this summer, I, ha- I let my leg hair grow out and I walked around in like shorts and short dresses with unshaved legs and I got a lot of stares and I was like, I don't care. And it was very liberating. And even though that's got nothing to do with my fat per se, it was massively liberating. So I love that. I love this idea of not caring so much about the male gaze. I hope that inspires some people who are listening today. But what about when it comes to your business? Do you ever feel that if you were to go down the more traditional route, you know, the posed photographs and you're trying to make yourself look thinner and more Insta-worthy, do you think that that would have a positive impact on your business? Do you, do you ever feel like you have to make a choice between maintaining your integrity or kind of, you know, selling out? So honestly, I tried that for so many years. I really did. I tried to shove myself into the box and it didn't work. (laughs) It didn't work. So I don't have the temptation of quote unquote selling out, you know, because that didn't work for me. Um, It was obviously inauthentic because there are a faction of people at my studio who've been around since the beginning. You know, they've they've been there for 10 years, eight years. That's not what they're coming for. They're not coming for the perfection. They're not coming for that Instagram sleek. They're coming for the realness. I consider that I came out as fat. That's really Mm -hmm. what it was, that I came out as fat and I wasn't trying to be anything other than I was, and that people have resonated with that more than ever. And the studio is actually doing better now than it ever has been, and the classes are more popular. So luckily for me, what aligns with my values is also what aligns with what works best for my business. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting. So as Arielle found Health at Every Size and Intuitive Eating, I also had to contend with the degree of restriction I've done my whole life. I didn't bottom out in the way that Arielle did or have, you know, my symptoms were not as severe in terms of a diagnosable eating disorder, but I've restricted my whole life and I am now in the largest body I've been in as a smaller fat person. And I have found because I'm in a lot of the ads, I'm in a lot of the videos, I'm, I'm visible on the studio account. I think that being in a larger body now is actually a real asset to the studio that people in larger bodies want to see themselves represented. And it has been a really cool way for me to embrace being on a larger, softer body than I was accustomed to, to know that it is an asset to to the studio. And it is a selling point in a, in a lot of ways. And that's been that's been a really cool paradigm shift for me to be like, you know, being larger and softer is is what's going to bring people in. See, I knew this was going to be a good episode. I knew it. <laughs> oh, that was amazing. You just, oh, both of you, you're fantastic. You mentioned at the beginning that you took up the opportunity to to start this dance studio before you knew any better. <laughs> Do you have any regrets? Um, we have certainly never been rich in dollars, but we are rich in amazing people. And that's why I do the studio. And, you know, I really related to what you said about, um, you know, getting online and finding a nice message, because I see some of the things that people say to you. And I just it fires me up so much. And I just, you know, want you to know how valuable what you do is to the world. And, and I'm so glad to have been able to meet you and to see all the amazing information that you put out there. Um, I've been involved in the health at every size movement for uh, four or five years 
years now. And honestly, the information that you put out there is so necessary because, you know, we talked about this when we did an interview that people just need to hear it from a doctor. So Mm -hmm. I actually ended up joining Overeaters Anonymous. And you had just had a podcast um, where somebody else had joined away and I resonated exactly with what she said. I was an adult and I joined of my own accord, but I like the 12 steps and I think that it can be very helpful. And in the context of actually addictive substances like alcohol, I think for some people, the 12 step model is really great. It does not apply to food and they teach you to have eating disorders. And um, you were a success story. You I were, was a success story. You were story. on a panel as a success story. I was on a panel as a success story. I was, I was in a way for four years and I lost a bunch of weight. And it's funny because I look back and in a way we had the saying of like 95% of people aren't going to reach physical recovery, but I'm going to be one of those 5%. So it mirrors exactly what we know about diets and no one ever caught that. It was that you weren't you weren't actually recovered if you weren't in a thin body. You know, you were spiritually unclean and it really is the epitome of turning dieting into a religion, which is really common in the culture now as actual religion starts to phase out. I feel like fitness and diet and wellness have now become the new religion. And that's what I did. Didn't, didn't they have an, uh, an expression about like you're needing to be brainwashed? Oh, yeah. There's a lot of people where say, you know, some people will say this is brainwashing, but my brain really needed to be washed. I said that. I'm an intelligent, a very intelligent woman, and I said that. And one of the other sayings is the road will narrow. Um, so I was extremely, extremely restrictive in food groups and took out everything that diet culture demonizes. I think we all know what all of those things are. And the saying the road will narrow means that you will have to continue to cut out food to remain thin. So that means if you didn't start with an eating disorder, you're going to end up with one. And that was me because I could have joined the National Weight Registry here in the United States because you have to like maintain. 30 pounds weight loss over two years. I could have joined it. And I would have been one of those 5% of people on there who could only maintain that weight loss through extreme restriction. I can't believe you said that because unknowingly you have just set me up for the next season of the Fat Doctor podcast. I, I, I swear, honestly, I have this in the pipeline. I don't want to give too much away, but series two is going to be sort of a deep dive into what I call the church of healthism. So it's a phrase that I coined. I don't know whether someone coined it before me. I kind of made it up, but who knows if people have been using it before me. But it's this idea that health and the worship of health and health, I say in inverted commas, because we all know that what some people consider health is not actual health. But anyway, the pursuit of health has become kind of like a religion. And I'm going to be exploring that a lot in season two. So well done for doing that. Thank you very much. Yes. (laughs) You both have such incredible integrity. And I know what you say is what you genuinely mean and that you're very passionate about fat liberation and incorporating fat liberation into your own business. The two of you inspire me with such joy and you help me to feel more comfortable in my body. And if I didn't feel as comfortable in my own body, I don't think that I would have the voice that I have today. I don't think that I would have the courage to speak out the way that I've been speaking out. So thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you so much for ending this series on a real high. I look forward to taking my first class. I'll let you all know how that went. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) I got to say, Dance Life is the place for that. You're going to find belly love at Dance Life. Thank you for having us. Thank you for joining me for series one. I'll see you back here for series two. I'll let you know the release dates nearer to the time. But in the meantime, feel free to take a look back 
at all my previous podcasts to share them and thank you all of you for your support thank you for listening and i hope you've enjoyed yourself today if you want to get more involved with the fat doctor podcast then why not check out my patreon i am at the fat doctor and on there i offer a variety of different tiers depending on how much you can afford each month you get the same access no matter which tier you subscribe to and one of the many benefits of joining my patreon is you get a chance to listen to some extended podcast episodes i've also got a facebook group friends of the fat doctor and there's my website www.fatdoctor.com For those of you who follow me on social media, I'm on Instagram, I'm on Twitter, I'm even on TikTok, can you believe it? Join me next time for another episode tackling weight stigma and fat oppression.